0: Today we're gonna be in uh, Ephesians chapter four, verses one through 12, primarily. However, uh, we will be looking at a variety of passages today. So I've been wanting for a little while now to do uh, a short series on membership, on covenant membership. Uh, And uh, our original plan was maybe do a couple sermons, uh, maybe a a short sermon series. Uh, So this is the product of that here today. Uh, We are going to take this week, as we have finished Luke, and before we move into Hebrews, which uh, Aaron will start for us next week, we want to take a time, us as elders, uh, have felt the need, seen the need for us to emphasize the necessity and the biblical nature of church membership. If you've been around Redeemer Fellowship or even been visiting us for very long at all, you'll know that we highly value church membership. You may notice at the end of every sermon before we take the Lord's Supper, we fence the supper in that way, that we require that, uh, that you be at least pursuing membership with the local church uh, or in uh, membership with the local church or a local church in order to take. And, and maybe you've wondered, why it is that we see this to be so valuable and so important, and my hope today is that you will see that we see church membership to be of value. We see church membership to be important because the Bible makes it so, because it's important in scripture. It is an unfortunate trend in churches today here in the United States that membership is largely on the decline. Church membership is on the decline by and large in churches. And when I say it's on the decline, I mean that in multiple ways. There are a whole bunch of churches that just are eliminating any sort of formal membership in their church altogether. There's there's no mention of church membership. There's no expectation. There's no uh, requirements. There is no membership in that local church. It has been eliminated altogether in any sort of substantial or formal way, and, and in that way, church membership, membership in the local church, is being eliminated or undersold or undervalued. But even in churches today in the West that have a formal church membership, it has been my experience, and I would wager many of you in here uh, to see that even those who have a membership, in for all intensive practical purposes, they do not actually value membership. Meaning that uh, according to one study, about 40% of, in, this is in Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches, about 40% of membership roles, those who are members at a local church, do not attend church at all, or certainly do not attend, attend that church. 40% of people who are members at a local church do not go to that local church that, among with other things, the, the lack of, of church discipline, the lack of, uh, of importance, the lack of any sort of, of requirement or any sort of advantage uh, that membership serves in the church is all eliminated and done away with. And I think this is, this is done for multiple reasons, but I don't think any reason could any, be any more overstated than it is just kind of the product of the age that we live in. We live in an age of individualism. We live in an age of lack of accountability. We live in an age of me, myself, and I, of self-made religion. We live in an age uh, of personal autonomy as the supreme doctrine. And I think this has largely produced, even in our churches, this sort of disdain or neglect of the idea of church membership. So it is my hope today that as we open up God's word together, you would see that church membership is something that the Bible necessitates. So our our text today that we're going to start with is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and I'm going to read that for us as we begin. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 12. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and, and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, he When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come today and Lord, it is my hope and my prayer that I would do justice to your word as I preach today. It is my hope and my prayer also, Lord, that, uh, that the congregation here today, Lord, would be encouraged, would be uh, uplifted and would be challenged, Lord, to see what your word has offered to us. Lord, pray that you would give us wisdom as we consider these issues uh, that by and large stand uh, in contradiction to the world around us. And Lord, may we stand with boldness, committed to your word, committed to Christ, and committing to his bride, the church. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So my main idea for today, uh, I don't always have a main idea presented to you in my sermons, but for today, my main idea is this that while local church membership is never explicitly taught in the New Testament, it is assumed throughout the New Testament. While local church membership is never explicitly taught in the New Testament, it is assumed throughout the New Testament. Now, I've made this statement very specific in that I have made it local church membership, and I've also acknowledged the fact that many like to bring up who are opposed to any sort of formal membership, and they say it's not taught in the Bible. This is a very common thing that I have heard expressed from those who say, I don't like the idea of membership because it's not taught in the Bible. <clears throat> and I would, to a point, agree with them and say, You're right. Church membership is never, in the local church, is never explicitly taught in the New Testament. But my argument would go on and say, It is assumed throughout the New Testament that we would be committed believers to a local church congregation. And notice that the issue at hand as I uh, am presenting this to you today is not whether or not you should go to church. That is also somewhat assumed. The fact that you are all here today, I would say you at least have some recognition, the importance, the value of gathering together with other believers, of going to corporate worship and and engaging in what it is that we are doing here today. So my issue is not even with that, because by and large, those who are opposed to church membership within the universal church, those who are opposed to church membership agree with that statement. Yes, it is important that we go to a church, that we go to church, that we gather together. And so my assumption, even in as I'm beginning this, is not simply... Or my point is not simply the necessity of being together once a week to worship, going to church, but specifically dealing with committed covenant membership to the local church. Today, as we consider these things, I want us to look at these issues and consider three important ways in which covenant membership in the local church is assumed and understood to be normative in the New Testament, because that is my argument. My argument before you here today is that local church membership, covenant membership in the local church is assumed and that it was normative in the New Testament. And I would argue this point in three ways from our text in Ephesians and from others as well. And I would first of all start with this, that church membership is assumed in salvation. In Ephesians chapter four in verses four through six that we've already read, We see this, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In this passage, we see unity in Christ Jesus. Unity, we are united in one faith, one baptism, one spirit, One Lord. All of these things point us to the idea that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, there is an assumption that we are coming into a unity, a communion, a fellowship with other believers. And one that is unique and that it it is united around the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is submitted to the will of God. This is the understanding of Ephesians, and it is also the understanding of other verses. Verses such as 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5, imply a close connection between salvation in Christ and membership in the local church. The connection, I would argue, is so close that there is no understanding in the New Testament of a believer, of a Christian, one who has been saved, who is not committed to to the, the body of believers. We see this in verses like 1 Peter 2, 4-5, where Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ. As you read this verse, you understand. The verse starts with, as you come to him, that is those of us who are saved, when it, when we are brought to Christ by the drawing of the Holy Spirit, when we are saved, when we are united to him, verse five says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. The idea here in 1 Peter and, and also in Ephesians is that We, as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, are not coming to a faith that is strictly our own, that is strictly personal, that is pure autonomy, me and God and nothing else. We are coming to a faith in which we understand that we are being built together with other believers into what Peter has described as a spiritual house. That we are being built together, put together, knit together in unity with one another as a display of the glory of God to the nations. There are multiple ways that this unity is described in Scripture. We're described in the New Testament as being members of one body. We see this language throughout Scripture, but especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, where Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members Of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. We see from 1 Corinthians this example of the church representing a body that we are all, though gifted differently, though unique in our own way, we are all united together as one body. The illustration is continued even in Scripture to say this is as though there are different parts of the body. Some people are ears. Some people are ears fingers, some people are internal organs, recognizing that all of us are different and serve different functions and have different giftings and do different things within the church, and yet we recognize that without any aspect of the body, the church suffers. Without any members, if we were to have our our fingers or toes removed, the body would suffer because of that. If we were to have organs severed, organs removed, eyes plucked out, ears cut off, the body would suffer because of that. We recognize then the unity that is communicated through this imagery, this this, uh, idea of this illustration of the body, the church, believers coming together as one body with Christ as the head. So we see this idea of unity, of membership one with another assumed through the imagery of the body. We see also that we are members of a kingdom. The the word tells us that we are united together as citizens, not of the kingdom of this world, but of the kingdom of heaven. That there is unity, there is binding membership in that. We see perhaps uh, one of the most important images of the church uh, in that of the family, that we are the family of God, we are the household of God, we are brothers and sisters united to one another. I think, and I know that many of us in here, some of us perhaps have not had the the perfect picture or our movie screen picture of what a family should be. And yet I think every single one of us in here can recognize that this imagery of a family assumes a level of commitment. It assumes a level of intimacy. It assumes a level of unitedness. So that we would wonder, why would anyone leave their family? Why would anyone abandon their family? That is, the, that is abnormal, not the norm. It is not normal for someone to abandon their family, for them to turn their back on their family, for them to not feel any commitment or obligation or love and affection toward their family. That's the outlier. The normative understanding is that your family means a great deal to, to you, that you are committed to your family, that you are united to your family. And so in all of these examples, I would argue that the New Testament presents the idea that membership is intimately tied to our salvation. Membership in the local church is tied to our salvation. We see, secondly, that membership is assumed in the commands given to believers. In our passage in Ephesians verses 1 through 3, we see Paul say, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In Paul's writing here in verses one through three, there is an understanding, there is an expectation of what? Of that we will see each other once a week, but not really care about each other that much? That we'll see each other once a week, but as soon as someone offends me, I'm out? No, the expectation that Paul gives here is that we would do what? That we would, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But there ought to be a, an eagerness within us to which it is our heart's desire, it is our motivation within the church to be united to preserve that unity, to preserve that oneness, this bond of peace that we have. And yet so often, so many in the church are quick and eager to do away with that. Why? Usually because it gets in the way of our own pride. It gets in the way of our own desires or because we feel like we don't owe that person any forgiveness or we don't owe that person any compassion or any patience. And when we think really very long and hard about it will recognize that we were owed none of that either by jesus christ and yet that's his commitment level to us ours ought to be similar paul outlines here in ephesians church membership is implied all through scripture and all the commands given to the believers in the churches there is an understanding sprinkled all throughout of unity with one another and that they are together gathered in local congregations. You think about all of the one one another passages in the New Testament, of which there are many. But think with me for just a little bit of, of a few of these one another passages that we see in the New Testament. We see in John 13 that we're called, and this is one of many places, to love one another. Romans 12 calls us to honor one another, to live in harmony with one another. Romans 15 calls us to welcome one another. 1 Corinthians 12 says care for one another. Galatians 5 calls us uh, that we are to, through love, serve one another. Ephesians 5 says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Colossians 3 says bear with one another and forgive each other. Live together in perfect harmony. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, build each other up. And 1 Peter says, show hospitality to one another and use your gifts to serve one another. Now, I would ask you the question, consider all of these things that we are called to welcome one another through love, serve one another, submit to one another, bear with one another, build each other up and answer this question. How is that possible apart from the local church? In what way can you be connected to the universal church and be building up, be living in harmony with, be encouraging, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ? How is that possible except through the local church? Because yes, we are all members of of the universal church, that in Christ all believers are knit together as one body. That is absolutely true, and I am not denying that reality. But the only way that that reality can effectively take shape in the world is in the local church. It absolutely makes no sense to be connected to the universal church and not the local church. For you cannot serve one another. You cannot submit to one another. You cannot live in harmony with one another if you are not around any of the one another's. It's impossible. It reminds me of a Babylon Bee article where... Uh, they, the headline read, and the old Babylon Bee articles when they first started coming out were great. They were fantastic. All you had to do was read the headline and you got it. And 90% of the time we're kind of convicted. And one of the headlines in one of these Babylon Bee articles, which if you don't know, uh, Babylon Bee started as Christian satire. And the headline read, uh, man refuses to join membership at local gym. Says he's part of the universal gym does make sense, does it? Where are you working out if you're not a member at a local gym, but just the universal gym? Everyone would call BS on that. And the same is true of church membership, that it is impossible to live out the commands that Scripture gives believers to live with one another if we are not living with one another. It's impossible. It is implied, it is expected in the New Testament that we would be committed to our brothers and sisters in the context of the local church. In addition to these commands that are given to all believers, we also see Paul discussing the purpose of spiritual gifts. We see this a little bit in our text in Ephesians, in verses 7 through 12, where he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then he says in 11 and 12, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. It's Paul's expectation that the spiritual gifts that are given are not given for our own personal edification. Why are they given? For the building up of the church for the building up of the body. Our spiritual gifts are given, are granted in order to be used to build one another up in the context of the church. And although it's not a command, I think it's also worth our, our consideration to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and consider what Paul says there. He discusses more on spiritual gifts here in 1 Corinthians 12 where he gives all kinds of details and, and, and has this in-depth in discussion on the various spiritual gifts, including the gifts that confuse everybody, right? Tongues, prophecy, these sorts of things. And this is what Paul says at the end of chapter 12, starting in verse, t- verse 27. Paul says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, Then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The answer to these questions is no. There's not a person that has all of those gifts. Even in Paul's day, there was none who was all of those things. Paul says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and then he says this is the concluding line in chapter 12 and i will show you a still more excellent way and then what does paul immediately go into at the end of saying i will show you a more excellent way he says earnestly desire the higher gifts then immediately what does he go into first corinthians chapter 13 which is what the love chapter that's right The higher way that Paul outlines is love, concern for one another, care for one another. We just read in Ephesians and we're reminded here in 1 Corinthians about the usefulness of spiritual gifts and the purpose for which they are given for the building up of the church. And now we see Paul again talking about uh, these gifts and some of the more unique gifts. And then he concludes this chapter this way and then begins in chapter 13 to describe the better way, to describe what it looks like to use our gifts, what it looks like to serve and work together as the church. And we read in 1 Corinthians 13, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to read for you probably the portion that we are all most familiar with, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, where Paul says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Some of you might right now feel like you're at a wedding because one of the only times that we ever hear this passage is at a wedding, right? And we hear it at almost every Christian wedding we go to. And it is a great wedding passage. If it was read at your wedding, That's great. It is a great commitment to make to one another as husband and wife. But who is this passage written to? Was Paul writing the letter of first husbands and first wives? No, he was not. Paul was writing a letter to the Corinthian church. When we read that love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy or boast or insist on its own way. Paul is telling the church, this is how you are to live in communion with one another, in fellowship with one another, in this kind of love. A love that does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Finally, he says, love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and what? Endures all things. This is the love with which we are called to live in community with one another. A love that bears all things he says the bottom line is that the new testament expectation for believers is a sort of unity with which it, that ne- necessitates a commitment to each other there is no other way to understand these passages other than our commitment to one another that i am willing to love uh, to love you to bear all things with you to endure all things that I will be patient and kind with you, my brother and sister in Christ, that my love, in my love for you I will not envy or boast, I will not be arrogant or rude, and I will not insist on my own way, nor will I be irritable or resentful. This is a radical kind of love with which we are called to love one another, and a love that will truly and amazingly unify the church together. This is the expectation of the New Testament, that believers will be united together with this sort of commitment to each other in love in Christ Jesus. Point number three, membership is assumed in church discipline. If you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. The responsibility given to believers to hold one another accountable and exercise church discipline when necessary assumes a clear understanding of who is in the fellowship. It assumes a membership in the local church. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, where Paul says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, and Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not the, is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil one from among you. When we consider a passage like this, along with passages like Matthew chapter 18, as uh, Jesus lays out the model for church discipline, we recognize and see the language used in this passage. Notice that, that what this passage is saying is, is that there is a distinction between those inside the church and those outside the church. This is abrasive to some people. It is abrasive to a lot of people. Even even for me, do I like the idea that there is an insider and there is an outsider? Do I like the idea that church discipline is a necessity in order to maintain a faithful church? Absolutely not. And yet because of sin, according to the commands of Scripture, we see that it is a necessity. And with that understanding, it then becomes a necessity, as Paul makes clear, to understand who is a member, who is inside the church, and who is outside the church. Along the same lines as church discipline are passages such as Acts 28 and Hebrews 13, 17, which indicate that pastors have a responsibility and will give an account for their care and watch over the sheep, over the flock of God. Scripture says that pastors will give an account for these and how they cared for the flock. They are accountable for how they kept watch over their souls. Whose souls are pastors responsible for? Are myself and Robert and Aaron, are we responsible for every person in the world for our care over their souls? No, I don't think that's what the text would imply. Are we responsible for every person in Evansville? No, not with regards to church membership not with regards to accountability we have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel to the world yes to evangelize to share with a broken and dying world that there is hope in christ yes that is our responsibility that is the responsibility of all christians but specifically when the new testament says that there is a responsibility that leaders pastors shepherds bear for the people in their church whose souls are they accountable for the only way to recognize this and to come to any sort of answer is to understand the necessity of church, discipline or church membership. That unless we know who actually belongs to the church, we have no idea who it is that we are accountable to or who we are accountable for. All of this points us to that necessity. Now, the question that is often asked and could very well be in your head right now is, okay, I agree with everything you've said, I agree that we are called to be united as members of the body, as members of the family of God, as as members, as citizens of the kingdom of God. I agree with everything you said, but why does it have to be formalized? Why does my name have to be written on a roll? Why should I have to sign a piece of paper for this to be true? Why can't it just be organic, right? That's largely popular in churches today, this sort of organic membership, and while there, there may be churches that do that in a good and faithful way, I would argue two reasons why the formalization of church membership, of covenant membership, is important. And I would say, first of all, by formalizing these kinds of important things, which we recognize the importance of church membership, that we very clearly outline the expectations and the parameters of what it means to be a member of a church. All of these guidelines that we have for us come from Scripture, but even still to have them outlined, clearly explained what the expectations and parameters of membership are is important. For anyone in here who has ever been given a job to do or put in a position or given a task and given no expectations or instructions, you understand the, the really importance of having some sort of formalized explanation, right? It, it sucks to be given a position, to be put in a, a, a job, and to be told, all right, do your job, and have no, no understanding of what is expected of you, of what your parameters are. By formalizing church membership, and for us here at Redeemer, we recognize a form of covenant membership, that you, when you become a member here, sign a church covenant. We understand that this clearly outlines the expectations for you as a member of this church, but also the parameters of what it means to be a member of the church. And then second, second reason why I would argue against a sort of organic or lack of formal recognition of church membership is that I would say a formal process demonstrates the great significance of the commitment being made. It demonstrates the significance. To sign your name to a document forces you to recognize this bears weight, that I am giving my word to do this. To do what? Not to just give your money, not to just obey some authority pastor, some dude, but I am signing my name that I am committing to what the New Testament has called me to do, to love one another, to bear with one another, to submit to one another, to care for one another, to hold other people accountable. All of that is what is committed to and understood in the normal process of covenant church membership. It is a good thing when someone becomes a member of a church for them to think, "Wow, this actually is a big deal." We want people to think that, why? Because it is a big deal. No one should enter into membership in a local church with a flippant attitude of, "Yeah, whatever, it's what other people are doing, uh, you know, how hard could it be? No big deal. That's not the way we want people to enter into church membership. We want them to know clearly and understandably why it matters and what you are being called upon to do and what you are submitting yourself to. Has church membership been done in bad ways? Yes. There have been abuses in churches that under the authority of a church covenant that a member signed, that member faced abuse. It would be a lie to deny that. But the answer cannot be to cast out church membership, to cast out a commitment to one another in a formalized way altogether. That cannot be the answer. For we see what we're left with. We see churches that are riddled with people who have no commitment to their local church, even if they are members. What does that membership mean? Nothing. It ought to mean something when we declare to the brothers and sisters at a local church that we are committing ourselves to them and they are committing themselves to us. Just imagine if we were to take this sort of posture towards marriage, a posture that says, why does it have to be formalized? Why can't you just trust me that I'm committed? Why are you making me say it in a vow? Why are you making me sign this marriage document to say that I'm committed? Why can't it just be organic? No one in here would take that position. And if you're married to someone or engaged to someone or dating someone and that's their uh, mentality, you should get out of that relationship because it's probably not going to last. If we recognize the importance of a covenant commitment to one another, then we ought to be willing to sign our name to it. We ought not to shy away from formalizing this commitment that we make one to another. In fact, in an essay written on church membership in a uh, very good Baptist polity book that I have, a pastor named John Hammett wrote this. He says, church membership, like marriage, involves a covenantal commitment. A commitment, a promise that is backed by an oath. That is, it is more than just saying to a, to a, a buddy, a friend, oh yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do this or that with you. But it is backing it with an oath, with a commitment, a promise, a guarantee that we will do this thing. And if not, we understand the ramifications. It is my observation that within the church, The idea of membership is largely being exchanged for the idea of subscription. If any of us in here, in today's day and age, subscriptions are all the rage. You can get a subscription to anything now. You can can subscribe to uh, TV shows and movies. You can subscribe to watch sports. You can subscribe for magazines. You can even subscribe for coffee and get all you want within that amount uh, of time for whatever you paid for but there's no obligation. Hey, if you don't like it anymore, drop it. No problem. There is no commitment level. There's just so long as I'm getting out of this, what I hope for, I'll keep putting something into it. But the moment I don't feel like I'm getting enough out of it or it's not worth it, I'm out. No big deal, I can walk away easy peasy, lemon squeezy. But that's not the expectation of church membership. How can someone possibly declare that I am bearing with one another, I am humbly submitting to each other, that I am accountable to this church, and at the same time say, something went wrong, I'm leaving. That is certainly not accountability in any sort of real sense. It's not an accountability in a marriage, and it's not real accountability in the church either. But covenantal commitment to the local church, covenant membership, is the expectation of the New Testament. And I see no other way around it. I see no other way to live faithfully according to what the New Testament has put in place than through membership to the local church. Here at Redeemer Fellowship Church, we seek to break the mold and uphold a biblical understanding of what the church is and how it is supposed to look. And let me say for the record, my goal in this sermon is not to hate on all other churches that don't do membership or don't do it well. That is not my intention. My intention is to say that here at Redeemer Fellowship Church, we're going to seek as best we can to be faithful to Scripture. And this is the way that we as elders, from the moment the church uh, was created, that the moment the church was started, this has been our heart, that we ought to be committed to one another in covenant relationship. For those of you who are here today and and aren't members of a local church, I would challenge you to consider what we talked about today. Ask yourself, why wouldn't you join in membership at a local church? Is this the kind of commitment? Is the kind of commitment that I've laid out here today, is it biblical? Is it biblical to be committed to one another in this way? Or is it not? Is this the expectation or not? And I would encourage you to ask yourself that question. And if you read Redeemer Fellowship's covenant and say, I cannot commit to that, then I would tell you, that's fine. Go and be committed to another church where you can't sign their covenant. But the bottom line is that we are called as believers to be committed to one another in this way. A way that goes beyond just, yeah, okay, I'll come. As long as I'm getting what I want out of this church, I'm here. But a way that says, no matter what, I am committed to this church. I would argue that not only does the New Testament bear witness to that, but that Christ himself gave us the example, gave us the model of what love within the church, commitment to one another looks like as Jesus himself died on the cross to save us. Even consider Judas in the upper room as Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. Jesus, this one, or Judas, this one whom Jesus knew, was going to betray him and was about to do it. Yet Jesus showed him care, compassion, was committed even to this man We are called as believers to be that committed to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to serve them in that way. And if you are not in a position where you are developing that kind of intimate relationship, where you are knowing and understanding the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ so that you can serve them, if you are not knowing and understanding the sins of your brothers and sisters in Christ so that you can hold them accountable and challenge them, and if you yourself are not making those needs and those sins known to your church so that they can care for you and hold you accountable, then I would argue you are not living faithful to God's word. I would challenge you today to consider the biblical nature of membership in the local church as christ committed to his church i'm going to read for us today as we as we close this is our membership covenant and for those of you in here who are members at redeemer fellowship church this is the covenant that you committed to and i would argue if you've been a member for a while you might not remember what's in this covenant and so today i'm going to read this covenant for you and i want you to listen to the commitments made in this covenant and ask yourselves am i committed in this way to this church If you have a good reason for not being committed in this way, come talk to us as elders. In fact, in the covenant, it says to examine your membership on a yearly basis to make sure that you agree and can commit to this covenant. But even if you are not a member, I would encourage you to listen to this covenant. If you find that this is a biblical, good and right commitment to the local church, then I would encourage you to consider joining in membership in the local church in this way. Our membership covenant is as this. Point number one, I am a Christian who has been saved from my sins by the grace of Jesus Christ and I've been baptized to give testimony of my identification with the body of Christ and obedience to scriptures. Number two, I agree that I'm in harmony with the Redeemer Fellowship statement of faith and will express to the eldership areas of doctrine where one does not agree and covenanting not to publicly or privately ridicule or seek to undermine or create division regarding the doctrine of Redeemer Fellowship. Point number three, I will seek to honor God by building up and encouraging the body of believers at Redeemer Fellowship, refraining from speaking or acting in a manner that would harm the reputation or well-being of God's church and or its individual members. For I will submit myself to the leadership of Redeemer Fellowship Church And to the discipline of the congregation in those cases where it is deemed biblically necessary, hereby giving informed consent that the public discipline may be instituted by any member of Redeemer, to any member of Redeemer Fellowship Church. And then, point number five, I covenant to submit to the authority of the Scriptures as the final arbiter in all issues. If you find that this rings true with Scripture, and I would be happy to to tell you where you can find this on the website or give you a printed out copy if you find that this meets the biblical standard, then I would encourage you to pray about committing to this covenant, even if you are already a member. For too often, we become a member and then we forget what we have covenanted to. We we forget what we are committed to. I would encourage you to remind yourself of the commitment that you had made, not only to Christ, but to his bride, the church. And I would encourage you to, to live up to what you have committed to, to the best that you can by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.